Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com, and we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by Airbrake. Airbrake is full stack, real-time error monitoring. Get real-time error alerts plus all the info you need to fix any error fast. And in this segment, I'm talking to Joe Godfrey, CEO of Airbrake, about why getting to the root cause of errors is so important. Look, Adam, to me, root cause is everything. All software has bugs. We all know that. And when you find a bug or, or when you can't find a bug, the amount of time that typically gets spent trying to chase around and figure out how to reproduce the problem and what's the cause of the problem, even like what part of the code kicked it off or what sort of actions drive it. I mean, that's hours and hours of time wasted spent chasing your tail instead of actually fixing the problem, improving the customer experience and getting back to building more features, which is really what your company is all about. So to me, being able to really understand like what is the root cause of this problem is the key factor to being able to solve that problem and get back to doing what's most important, which is building new features and improving your product. And and quite frankly, fixing the customer experience is broken as long as that bug is out there. All right, check out Airbrake at airbrake.io slash changelog. Our listeners can try out Airbrake for free for 30 days. Plus you get 50% off your first three months. Try it free today. Once again, airbrake.io slash changelog. Welcome back. This is The Change Log, a podcast featuring the hackers, leaders, and innovators of open source. I'm Adam Stachowiak, editor-in-chief of Change Log. On today's show, we talk with Chad Hattel about Ember.js, the long history of Ember, how Chad first got involved, his work at LinkedIn, and his work as an Ember core team member, how the Ember team communicates expectations from release to release very well, their well-documented RFC process, ES classes in Ember, Glimmer, Glimmer's VM, and also where Ember is being used today. So Chad, it's been a very, very long time since we've talked about Ember on the changelog. In fact, our last episode with members of the Ember team was called The Road to Ember 2.0 with Tom and Yehuda Katz back in November of 2014. 2014? So, what? Coming up on four years, Ember's still here and kicking, so we have a lot of catching up to do. But first, let's get to know you a little bit and maybe even look at Ember through your eyes. Um, tell us how you came to be an Ember Core team member. The path for me to get into the Ember Core team was uh, I joined LinkedIn in 2013. Um, and at that time, we were doing building a lot of applications that were interactive uh, heavy. And, and so we were using Backbone for this. But a lot of the meetings that we had internally at LinkedIn at the time were many hours of, like figuring out how to do some of like these very basic patterns, uh, like how to do routing, how to do child views, uh, how to, you know, efficiently tear down parts of the UI as like the user interacts with it and navigates away from page to page. And what I kind of recognized was that this is a huge cost. This is like, we're talking you know, like 20 people sitting in a room trying to figure out all of these ideas of how to build these applications and kind of this, these fundamentals. And so I started at LinkedIn looking at, you know, potential solutions to this problem. How can we build these rich applications um, and kind of up level people in terms of what they're actually concerned about? They 
we have a lot of engineers at LinkedIn uh, that are product engineers. And what we want them to be able to do is like build these really great uh, product experiences for people and not spend a whole lot of time of figuring out uh, problems that frankly I felt were already solved by a variety of uh, frameworks and technologies in the space at the time. So uh, in, let me think, 2014, uh, we did a big internal project at LinkedIn to kind of kind of taste test uh, a bunch of different technologies. And uh, one of the, the technologies we kind of landed on and I championed was Ember uh, just because I had built these types of applications that Ember was kind of uh, the audience for. Um, and that's kind of like how I got involved in, in Ember in general is that like, we had like a need, we were building very rich applications. I thought Ember did a very good job at, you know, doing like the routing and like the components and like views and all that type of stuff for the client side applications. So, I mean, we're one, one of the larger consumers of Ember. And because of that, we were like working on the framework and everything like that. So I, we, I got into contact with Tom and Yehuda at the time and, they did, uh, I think, uh, they did a little bit of consulting work with us at the beginning. Um, and we as LinkedIn, we have like specific needs. So LinkedIn pays my, me and like several other people at LinkedIn to work on Ember and other open source technologies. And so, you know, just by virtue of, you know, working on larger and larger portions of the open source project, uh, they asked me to join the core team uh, about a year and a half ago. Um, so that's kind of like how I got involved with the Ember project. And, and I also was doing a lot of things with like Ember CLI, which I think is what uh, Tom and Yehuda were really excited about when you talked to them in 2014 was uh, uh, Ember CLI. So I, I worked with Steph Penner on a lot of things early on with Ember CLI. And that was kind of like my kind of getting my feet wet, working on somewhat large open source projects. Well, I think we should maybe give credit where credit is due and, and give props to LinkedIn. What do you think, Adam? We talk about companies putting you know their money where their source code is, and this is a shining example like of LinkedIn really coming alongside a framework that didn't start there. You know, we see companies like Facebook having React coming out of Facebook, but here's Ember, which pre-exists and exists out in the open source world, has its own ecosystem, and then LinkedIn really buying into it and supporting it for, for a very long time. Yeah. I mean, from the consulting side on through to now, you know, I think Tom, does Tom still work there? Yeah. Tom uh, is on my team at LinkedIn. Yeah. And it sounds like your employment at LinkedIn predates Tom joining. So you may even be a part of that whole process. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was there basically from the beginning and I'm still there today. I, I've just like celebrated my fifth year at LinkedIn. So I've been there for quite some time. Is it safe to say that the reason that Ember uh, or LinkedIn has gotten involved and supports Ember is because of you? I I don't think I would say that. I think that the business has uh, specific needs and they, uh, we think that from like a core team's perspective is that we want uh, Ember as a framework to you know, cater different size companies, different use cases and everything like that. Um, and this is kind of, I think, one of the luxuries of uh, having everything be open source is that you see all of these different use cases and everything like that. And um, 
I think what I brought to the table from the open source perspective is like, you know, rather large company with like hundreds of engineers. Um, how do we, you know, build a, a better system to suit those types of use cases? Well, one thing that we can say about Ember, I mean, even back when we had Tom and Yehuda back on in 2014, they were talking about playing the long game. Do you remember that, Adam? I do. And how they were investing for the long, yeah, for the long term. And uh, one thing that we can say about Ember is it's just continued to like iterate, continue to improve. The there's been many innovations that have come out of Ember. The CLI, the focus on the CLI, I think was uh, was huge. Uh, there's another one I had on top of my head that I just lost, but glimmer, glimmer. Yeah, absolutely. Like the mind share of developers, you know, kind of ebbs and flows and we've seen other things come along, you know, angular became big and now react is very big and Ember has just continued to be kind of the slow and steady wins the race attitude of just like continuing to push and push and push. And it's kind of a picture of sustainability in that sense. Yeah, I would agree. It's, it's kind of funny sitting here in 2018 and a lot of like these ideas that I think um, Ember kind of championed early on, things like having a conventional CLI tool um, were pretty radical, I think, at that point in time. Um, And now like you have Angular CLI, there's a Vue CLI, there's a React uh, CLI tool for kind of like scaffolding out these projects. The other kind of interesting thing is Um, the way that, uh, I think Yehuda and others got involved with the standardization uh, process, uh, there's like, uh, this manifesto, it's called the extensible web manifesto. I think like multiple people, uh, that are pretty prominent in the industry kind of wrote and said that they're going to become part of the, the actual standardization process. So you had, um, people that weren't like academics or like language designers, but actual practitioners, going and working on the standardization body. And so you kind of see some of those things in how Ember APIs have been created. Uh, In the past, they were, I think, very forward looking. And this is one of the things that I'm probably most excited about the the Ember uh, 3.0 roadmap. It is like finally um, having a lot of these things about, or having a lot of the now spec'd out things to be the mainline APIs inside of Ember. So for example, I think Yehuda has been working on like decorators, ES6 decorators, or like if you're familiar with Java or like annotations for like two years now, uh, that looks like it's going to finally land. And that's kind of the last feature that we need to represent all of Ember's object model um, in native uh, JavaScript syntax. So the first thing was like, we need like class system, that came out in ES6 and Yehuda was very involved in, with that in the beginning. And now we kind of, we have like this notion of like computed properties, uh, which we need like decorators for. So uh, I think at within Ember 3.0, we'll definitely see like how these, this class system that, you know, when was released was targeting browsers like IE7, IE8, IE9 uh, that had like, no shot of like ever having the, these JavaScript features and how we have evolved from a class system in th- those days to uh, the framework that I think everybody would expect you to have in 2018. So using not using basically a uh, non-user space defined class system uh, and other U- APIs like that. So 
Um, there's other things, other APIs. I think in in Ember itself, there is like there's in a whole enumerability uh, class and mixins and everything like that. And those APIs have now been standardized. They're I think in IE ten and forward. Um, so I think it goes to show that not only was like Ember early on some of like these concepts, it's uh, the APIs themselves. I think were ahead of their time, and we've just been we're slowly but surely uh, going to land everything that these APIs were kind of designed for, um, or at least we're forward uh, seeking and or forward looking uh, in terms of like landing the actual native thing. Yeah, and then you know it, it the web itself is better off for it, for sure. The other thing that I, I had top of head and couldn't remember as I got mid sentence is the release cycle, which was I think the I think the Chrome Dev team really was the trailblazers of this you know continuous release pattern every six weeks with the multiple channels. But Ember was very early, if not the first framework, right? Non, you know, Chrome is a end user program, but like a first dependency framework to really say this, this can work for us as well. Um, and just continue down that road for all these years has been, uh, we've seen that mirrored elsewhere. So that's another place where y'all have innovated. Yeah, on the builds page is actually laid out pretty good too. The path to 3.2.0 is, is laid out graphically even. And it seems like it's, you know, part of, you know, this release cycle to say, Hey, this is where we're at April 10th. This is where we'll be at May 21st. And here's what you can expect in between now and then beta one, beta two, beta three. And, you know, it sets an expectation to one developers contributing and also community stepping in to say, you know, what is the release cycle path for the next release? You know, that kind of thing. It's it's a very good to set that expectation because that's half the battle of diminishing confusion. Yeah, I think one of the other things that we're really trying to push forward is we actually have a status board. Um, so the Rust project, I believe has a similar thing. So I think if you go to like emberjs.com slash status board or slash status, um, you can see all of the the efforts uh, that we're currently working on um, and what's the state of those things, the RFCs associated with them, uh, relevant PRs and all that type of stuff. So some of the things that I mentioned, like the you know updating the object model is one of the things on there. Glimmer components is uh, another thing that's on that list. Um, so um, we're still, you know, playing with it, but yeah, we want to let the community know like how we're actually evolving the framework over time. And just in case you're listening to this and you went to slash status, it's actually slash status board. So check the show notes for the true link. That is very cool. Uh, and I definitely would, uh, advocate for other projects to have similar, I mean, just very explicit and clear on where things are, you know, where they're heading. And that's super valuable. So I, I'm just thinking about Ember in this, you know, kind of the Energizer bunny of of, of JavaScript frameworks. And the, really, as a model for sustainability, it makes me wonder, at a macro level, can you describe to us how the, not Ember.js, the source code works, but can you describe to us how Ember, the open source project, runs? Governance, we talked about the release cycle a little bit you know, sponsorship, give us a picture of like how this machine moves down the road. The way that the core team kind of works is that there's individuals from, uh, that are kind of stakeholders. I would say they are, you know, they own their own business. They work at a company that uses Ember, um, they're consultants. Um, and 
those people have been kind of like hand selected by uh, other people on the core team. So obviously this started off as a core team of two is like Yehuda and Tom. And um, as the project wrap, uh, ratcheted up and people put more eyeballs on it, they identify people within the community that were, uh, I guess, contributing a lot to the system that had like a fairly good understanding of the system and we're moving it forward. So I think every year at EmberConf, they kind of announce new people that they recognize to become part of the, uh, what's known as like the Ember core team. But there's also other core teams. There's like a core team that is responsible for the actual Ember CLI. We have uh, a learning team, which is all the docs and the learning resources. Um, they also do like infrastructure for the, the website for like the emberjs.com website. Um, and then there's the Ember data team, which is uh, kind of responsible for uh, everything related to the data layer. And so uh, we, we think of all of these teams uh, as uh, being, I guess, peers to one another. There isn't like this overarching, um, you know, group that is like the core team or whatever. Uh, we really would like to think it as we have people that are just very focused on very important parts of the overall ecosystem. Uh, now, the the Ember core team historically has met, I think, once a quarter face to face, and uh, we have like two days. We go somewhere and we talk about like through. We have different types of meetings. There's like okay, what are like the things we want to do in the next quarter? Um, we kind of come up with a plan. We write RFCs during that time. Um, then there's kind of uh, the long game type of face-to-face uh, -face meetings where we kind of ask the question of like, what is, where, where do we want to take Ember and what are the logical steps of getting there? Uh, so they're both like long and short term uh, meetings that we typically typically have. Um, and some, so I guess the funding from, from like the meetings and everything like that is uh, a lot of people's employers, um, I like send, like they, you know, LinkedIn sends me to go to those meetings to talk about like the future of the framework and everything like that. Uh, other people uh, are f funded or they're like, they're sponsored in some way uh, through, uh, if they're consulting at a time and they are they're working on something uh, kind of like specific to uh, that's kind of blocking what they're doing the consulting work for, then they can kind of get their uh, you know trip paid for or, or whatever. But I think a lot of a lot of it is people do actually spend their own like personal money to you know drive the the framework forward because they care about it and they have a kind of a vested interest in terms of where where the 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 technology should go, and they—they they, a lot of people have different um, points of views in terms of where it should go because of, you know, at, like I mentioned before, Ember is trying to suit the needs of many different things, like from consultancies to like small applications to really large applications. So having people with their own kind of like viewpoint is like super helpful. Is there a trump card? Is there like a? let's say there's a disagreement about a direction and I mean, can Tom just say, yeah, no, 
because Tom's one of the two. How does that work? So we're largely a consensus uh, driven uh, team. Um, like all, all of the teams, you have to get consensus uh, of all of the members on the team. There's no like BDFL, I'm going to come in and like tell people this is the way that it's going to be. Um, so as one can imagine, consensus-based things are, can be uh, typ- <laughs> typ- typically grueling at times yeah. when the, there's people aren't convinced that a specific direction is the way to go. So a lot of it is um, think, thinking about all of these use cases and all of these concerns that people have and trying to come up with the, the best solution forward. Typically, when people do have concerns, it's not like flipping you know, tables and telling people uh, you know, you're just wrong and can't like give concrete examples of like why a specific direction is wrong. It's more or less, um, there are very true things that just need to be incorporated in, in, into the larger design that a person is kind of pitching. And so then eventually like some sort of vote, uh, I, we don't really vote. It's just like more or less like we ask, like, does everybody kind of agree? And then we <laughs> yeah. move forward, right? It's kind of like a vote. <laughs> Speak now yeah, or forever like hold your yeah. peace, right? Like, yeah, right. It's not an official it. boat. Not a, not, a, not a boat, gosh. Not an official ballot. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> ballot. I said B for anyways. If there you was an official it. ember boat, that would be neat. <laughs> yeah. Another thing that is kind of interesting is the RFC process. So um, a vast majority of the ideas that we talk about, like, uh, in these face-to-face meetings, and we also have weekly meeting like weekly, weekly meetings on Friday um, are talking about the design uh, if we're writing an RFC or there's RFCs that the community uh, have talked about like everything is out in the open and that's kind of the point of the RFC process there isn't like some smoky room where we're like concocting up all these plans or whatever no it's like everything that we do that we talk about becomes an RFC um, and then the community can comment on it and think it's a good idea or not. Like for instance, I have like a couple RFCs out right now where they're somewhat controversial, I guess. So uh, we're hearing from the community in terms of like what uh, they think uh, about some of these ideas. How do you go about starting an RFC? Like I'm trying to find docs on like the process to get there and and just poking around the EmberGS website. Where, where would somebody go that may not be aware of the process, learn of this and then at the same time, know how to actually fulfill an RFC that may not be familiar with the process. I believe that the process is outlined um, in a GitHub repo. Uh, it's like github.com slash ember or .com slash emberjs slash RFCs. Um, and basically anybody can write an RFC. There are required parts of this document. So this document has to uh, give a quick TLDR of, you know, what are you trying to solve with the RFC? Um, and then give uh, a very kind of like detailed breakdown of like, you know, why, and then if the, then do a detailed design. And then after that, uh, you have to explain how this thing is going to be taught. So if you're introducing a new API, one of the kind of issues with that is, uh, one, you have to be solving a problem, uh, that is real. And then two, you have, if the, if the API is so convoluted, then nobody is actually going to use it to uh, or know how to use it, right? So 
that's probably one of the more important sections that we've added recently is like, how do we teach uh, this concept or this API? Um, and then you also have to include like drawbacks or alternatives. And then there's like an open questions uh, thing. And then basically anybody that you can, you can basically open up a PR against the repo. And then uh, it typically will, you know, we will look at it. The core team will look at it um, and kind of take a glance at it, give feedback in it, and then ask the person if we think the idea is good, but it requires like some rework in a couple areas. We provide that feedback and it's a very like iterative process. I like this, how we teach part of this RFC process, because it's like, maybe help me on this, Jared, if you, if you like this too, but it feels like it's like teachable driven development, which is like, you know, not only here's the problem and here's the design for how to solve it and maybe even some open-ended questions that may be out there, but how do we actually teach the community how to use this? That seems so, I mean, is that, does that happen often out there? I haven't really noticed that this process is part of like the RFC baked in process anywhere else. I'm looking at the, the repo, actually, the RFC repo actually is pretty informative and there's a template in the repo that kind of goes through all this, the summary, the motivation, the detailed design, how we teach this. And you've got block quotes for, you know, bullet plate for saying, this is how this process works. This is what we expect to see here. This is some example of what you might put in here. Drawbacks, alternatives, unresolved questions. This is pretty thorough. Maybe this is, this is a huge credit to the stability of, of this project is like, you've got a process for how changes go in and how changes get proposed and it becomes, you know, a much more successful project because you've got good guardrails up. I think that having that section actually changes a little bit on how you um, introduce concepts um, because you have to think about the teaching aspect and to some level, like the documentation and like the guides aspect very um, before you've actually written any code, right? So it puts that, I guess, in, in front of you uh, to answer that question um, very, very early on and like how it fits into the bigger picture. I, the only thing I'm, I'm kind of bummed about, and maybe this is just me not Googling well enough yet, is just not seeing this kind of template further along early in the process, like uh, a blog about it or something like this is such core information, I think, that would be that's really useful to to would-be contributors that they may have to dig a little too far to get. My intuition on that is, and, and Chad, correct me if I'm wrong now, but my intuition is when by the time you get to the point where you're going to write an RFC, you've kind of been initiated into the Ember community long enough that you've stumbled upon, or you've seen other RFCs and mm. you've talked, you know, so it's kind of like for the uninitiated, maybe it's overkill or maybe it's overwhelming. And so maybe that's why it's not up front. Yeah, I think that's kind of the way that we think about it is the people that are really passionate about things in the community and have, um, you know, somewhat detailed um, understanding of how the community works and everything like that are the people that typically write RFCs. Um, so uh, we, we definitely talk about it in, I think, different blog articles. We haven't, maybe it's been, it's probably been several years since we, introduced the RFC process, I think it might have happened right around 1.0. So once we hit 1.0, we locked down the API, we said, okay, this is the operating model going forward in terms of introducing new API stuff. So it may have been just a long time since we introduced it. And uh, we're 
kind of continue, like I mentioned, we added the learning section recently. So it is something that we're still iterating on and everything like that as we learn new things mm -hmm. from um, other people that are doing RFCs now, like I believe like React is now doing RFCs. Uh, Rust does a lot of RFCs. Um, so yeah, we're learning from other communities as well. The amount of detail and the template, the fact that you have this all written down, I was even thinking as I read through the RFCs, read me here, you talk about substantial changes, you know, like you don't need an RFC if it's not a substantial change, like that's a typical pull request. And then I was like, well, what is a substantial? Cause you kept, there's, there's quotes around the word substantial a couple of times. And I'm like, well, what is a substantial change? And then it goes on to describe, this is what we <laughs> consider us. And so it just speaks to how, that's funny, you know, how much thought time and like really, uh, iteration has gone into this just over the years, just constantly churning, right? Making, improving, getting better and fleshing it out. This is the, this repo, the RFCs repo is a sign of a very mature project and community that's been through stuff and learned along the way. So it's just very impressive. Yeah. I don't know how many half like JavaScript half-lights Ember has been through, but it'll probably go through <laughs> several more. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is a cloud computing platform built with simplicity at the forefront. So managing infrastructure is easy. Whether you're a business running one single virtual machine or 10,000, DigitalOcean gets out of your way so teams can build, deploy, and scale cloud apps faster and more efficiently. Join the ranks of Docker, GitLab, Slack, HashiCorp, WeWork, Fastly, and more. Enjoy simple, predictable pricing. Sign up, deploy your app in seconds. Head to slash changelog, and our listeners get a free $100 credit to spend in your first 60 days. Try it free. Once again, head to slash changelog. Chad, so do your best to catch us up. You don't have to give us the full four years um, between Ember 2.0 and Ember 3.0 or 3.1, which is the latest release. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more. I know you, you got into a little bit of the innovations um, and also where you see things going with the status board. But tell us what's new for those people who have maybe used Ember a couple years ago or checked it out then and moved on, didn't dive deep into it and have it on a production application. Uh, if they revisited the project, what would they find now that they wouldn't have found last time around? So I think uh, a large portion of what we spent the time on during uh, the 2.0 series, though, is, is a fairly long series. Uh, and what we kind of recognized was some of the infrastructure that we have, primarily around the rendering layer, wasn't going to set us up for success. Um, so in at around 1.0, 1, 1 uh, from going from 1.13 to 2.0, uh, at EmberConf, we talked a, a little bit about this project called uh, Glimmer. Um, it, the name has evolved into something else um, from that point. Um, but what Glimmer was trying to do was modernize um, 
the, the underlying rendering engine. So in Ember 1.0, it was primarily like doing string concatenation and interpolation with like dynamic values. Um, then towards the tail end of like 1.11 or towards the end of the 1.0 series, we released this thing called HTML bars, which was going from string interpolation into uh, just generating um, compiled templates that were effectively what you would handcraft if you were to write like all the DOM methods to construct the DOM. And then there was a system there to keep that DOM up to date. Um, and then right around that time, that's when React started, like came out and, you know, really uh, made us kind of rethink on like what the programming model uh, should be. And that is like driving uh, all the state through uh, like property setting or like in React, it's like right. set state or whatever, which causes you to basically re-render the entire view. So uh, the first iteration of uh, Glimmer was kind of getting to those similar semantics um, and not, not necessarily using a virtual DOM itself, but the same idea that whenever you need to update the UI, you call this dot set with a new value. And then, you know, you basically have committed that change into the system and then the rendering engine figures out how to most optimally update the view. So that was kind of the first version of Glimmer. Um, then 2.0 kind of started, and then we realized we wanted to implement um, what was known as these angle bracket components, which were supposed to be a lighter weight uh, version of what existed in Ember 1.0 and still exists today is these uh, of Ember components. So these Glimmer components is what we called them, or angle bracket components, uh, were meant to be a lighter weight thing that did have some of the, the performance issues and APIs that we just don't really want to live with anymore. Um, but when we try to implement them on top of this, uh, this infrastructure, the HTML bars with the, this uh, React-like semantics, uh, they weren't actually faster. Um, and so we felt that the, the underlying architecture made a lot of assumptions on how the old rendering engine worked. And so that kind of started um, this big uh, kind of uh, iterative change to figure out what the new rendering engine should look like. Um, so it, you know, we typically are all about like incre incremental improvements over time and not like do big bang rewrite. So I think Yehuda forked uh, the HTML bars repo uh, like in 2014 or something like that and started working on the next iteration of what we call Glimmer 2. And Glimmer 2 has been, it is kind of from the ground up re-architecting how we think about the rendering engine from an architectural point of view. So templates themselves are kind of interesting, uh, like an interesting concept. So a template is at its truest form, uh, a pure function. Uh, you have a template and you have a context and you mash those two things together and you get the same, uh, you get some output. Now, if the context and the template are the same, you will, it's referential transparent, right? If the context doesn't change, then you'll get the same output every single time. Um, and so we, we think about, uh, the templating, we've changed the focus, um, of how we think about the template layer from like 
this thing that creates views, and we actually wanted to model the underlying rendering engine uh, as if the template language was an actual like programming language. So we think of the templating language now more of a as a functional language itself. Um, and so part of what the Glimmer rendering engine does is that, or it is a virtual machine. And so what we do is instead of compiling the template into a bunch of like JavaScript code um, that is then just kind of like called into from JavaScript land and then it produces the DOM, uh, the first iteration of the new Glimmer, the, uh, Glimmer rendering engine was compiling the templates into a JSON structure. And then we interpreted that at runtime and we compiled into uh, a, a program that then created the view. So this is a pretty fundamental uh, difference in between where I think a lot of uh, JavaScript application or JavaScript frameworks are today is that uh, you have things like JSX or you have like Angular templates and they're all compiling into uh, JavaScript and then running it on, on the client. One of the kind of like founding principles is that we felt that we could make the, the compiled output much smaller if we compiled to a JSON format and then interpreted it uh, at runtime. And that turned out to be true. Uh, when we did this work and we landed inside of the LinkedIn application, I think we reduced the compiled uh, template size by I think 5X. Wow. So we went from like almost 10, meg 10 megabytes of compiled Java, like JavaScript templates um, down to, uh, you know, whatever that, that is. It was like a, a pretty massive reduction because we're not compiled. We can see more of, we can see the templates kind of at one time. We can do different types of optimizations um, that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do if you're compiling, compiling to a JavaScript program. So like this is like hoisting code and every hoisting um, interesting parts about the templates that may be shared and everything like that. So they're stored as JSON then, is that what you said? I'm just making sure I tracked you. Yeah, so the first pass of it was, let's take the templates, compile them to JSON. So uh, there's kind of some interesting uh, articles out there around like the performance of, you know, JSON parsing versus if you were to like have that same string in JavaScript land. Um, a lot of engines, uh, because if you use like JSON parse or whatever like that, the parsing of the JSON string is has to do less checks and everything like that because the grammar of JSON is much more constrained than um, like JavaScript, right? You can have a string and all of a sudden like it's calling a function and now you have to like go into that function and then get the return value out and then interpolate the string. So um, parsing the, the JSON uh, and then putting it through basically an interpreter, we got you know some runtime wins from that as well. If you've looked at like other functional programming languages uh, that are built on like other languages, if you look at something like Clojure uh, that's built on top of the JVM, uh, you kind of have a similar story as to like the next evolution. So instead of doing like this JSON format. Um, we would go from the JSON format into an actual, uh, like a bytecode set. So we wrote um, our own bytecode set that we uh, compile the JSON into and then 
we have the actual virtual machine loop through that and it's encoding all the instructions to um, build the UI. And then, so that was somewhere in 2.0 towards the, the tail end. And then I worked on a project at LinkedIn last year, which was if we're compiling at runtime uh, this JSON to this binary format and then running it, can we actually do all of this stuff ahead of time? The, we felt like it was 100% possible, but part of the challenges uh, of, of this is uh, with a templating system is that you, you have a very declarative, um, or a template's very declarative, but it's talking about things that are in JavaScript land. So you need a way of kind of bridging this gap between I'm talking about this declarative template and then calling into JavaScript land to like create components and everything like that. So one of the challenges is like, uh, if we are going to pre-compute the, the binary that we're creating at runtime, we have to have some way of resolving uh, components at build time. So we built uh, like a, almost like a bridging technology that um, when we discover like an invocation to a component, what we do is replace the call site um, with a number, which we call a handle. And at runtime, what you're responsible for is basically replacing that handle with a live JavaScript object. So this is similar to how things like, I think Emscripten work this way when you're uh, it, the first versions of like Asm where we're gonna like create this, you know, what which became WebAssembly, but you have to have some way of talking about um, invoking things that are actual JavaScript objects versus right. uh, binary, yeah, reference inside of uh, the binary code. So, uh, we did that and we're able to reduce the template size further um, because now your programs don't get compiled into JavaScript. They don't get piled in JSON. They actually get compiled into an array buffer. And the reason why we felt like this was where we wanted to go is um, one of the things that a lot of the people, a lot of the folks at Google have been talking about over the past couple of years in terms of like JavaScript performance or getting up and running. Like I think Adi Asmani has uh, written an article about like JavaScript startup performance. And one of the, the big costs of these client side applications, especially on mobile devices, is parsing compiling JavaScript. So you're going from this very high level code and has to compile it all the way to machine code. Um, and there's, co there's definitely cost to that. And so we felt that if we can compile templates, which represent a rather large portion of uh, a client side application into something like binary data that doesn't have to go through the JavaScript parse and compile pipeline, then we can get um, some decently sized wins from that, especially as you know your, uh, your application grows and grows and grows, the more templates that you'll have inside of your application. And if you're compiling into JavaScript, you have to uh, you know, occur the JavaScript parse and compile costs. And so this is kind of like the, the state of where we're at with Ember is, we, we haven't landed the compiling to binary code inside of Ember yet. Um, last year's Ember Conf, we announced this thing called Glimmer.js, uh, which is a lightweight uh, component library that you kind of like equate it to kind of like React. It's just the view layer. It isn't like a router or anything like that. It's like, it's like a class object and uh, a template and allows you to like put components onto a page. 
Um, so we use that that project kind of as a proving ground for a lot of like these crazy ideas. Like, can we take this uh, you know templating layer layer and compile it to binary code? Ember has strong guarantees around stability um, and Semver and everything like that. So we can't just like go off and into the desert and come up with like some crazy idea and uh, try to kind of shoehorn it back into Ember. Uh, we have to design a system that allows us to make large leaps, but then also bring everybody in the community along for the ride in terms of like the performance. So with Glimmer.js, it's the same rendering engine uh, that Ember uses. They, they, use, they have the same dependency on it. So what you can express, uh, the, the VM, you can think of it as uh, just like a virtual mas machine runtime. The templating language between these two things are equal. So it, it ends up working out. It, so you're able to basically do this experimentation, but have the guarantee uh, that it is going to eventually uh, land in Ember in some form. You're answering a few of my questions as we go along there, I think, because the, the first one I started having was, you know, these are major rewritings of the underpinnings. And so do the ergonomics change um, from the Ember.js user perspective? And it sounds like you're saying no, because you've taken, you've gone through great pains to take the volatile bits and move them over to Glimmer and then like slowly introduce this back into Ember. Is that what you're saying? Or am I not following you? The way that we have designed the VM is that uh, we put a hard constraint on this has to be able to work in Ember. And so while we do um, a bunch of, we've done a, a bunch of experimentation with the underpinnings, the semantics of the system have to basically remain the same. And we, we think that React got this bit right in terms of how to think about the programming model. So as long as we have um, the, the same semantics of like when I need to update the state, I call some method or I set some property and it updates the view, um, that all remains as constant. It's more or less that because the, the templating lang language gives us uh, an abstraction, it isn't JavaScript. We're not tied to the JavaScript runtime or whatever like that. We can fundamentally change the underpinnings of this system. And then my other question I was having was, uh, and I believe you answered this, but I'll reiterate it so we're all on the same page. Glimmer then, Glimmer.js, which actually has its own website, Glimmer.js.com, this could be used completely standalone and perhaps you're, you would maybe even advocate for people who just need a component, a UI library, and don't need all of the other things that Ember offers. Now you could just use this by itself. Yeah, so that was kind of the idea with Glimmer is that we kind of uh, recognize that there is a spectrum of applications that one may want to build. Uh, there is the highly interactive, uh, like single page application experience that Ember, uh, I think is well suited for. And then there is like, hey, I need to put, you know, this dynamic widget on this page. Uh, and I just need a little bit of state management, but I don't need a full framework. And so that was kind of the, the idea around uh, Glimmer.js. Um, but we're actually thinking about, um, with Ember is how can we uh, make that experience, how can we make an actual experience like that inside of Ember? So this is thinking about uh, 
can we serve a kind of like bare backbone of Ember that can do the same things that Glimmer.js uh, has? So that's the way we don't like bifurcate. Um, while the Glimmer VMs are uh, the same between these two things, and you can totally take, a, you sh you'll be able to take a component from a Glimmer.js app and put it in an Ember app and it just works. Uh, that's like one of the things that we're actively working on right now, but we're also coming from the other end and saying, can we um, make it so that you can build very lightweight applications with Ember itself? This episode is brought to you by our friends at GoCD. GoCD is an open source continuous delivery server built by ThoughtWorks. Check them out at GoCD.org or on GitHub at GitHub.com slash GoCD. GoCD provides continuous delivery out of the box with its built-in pipelines, advanced traceability, and value stream visualization. With GoCD, you can easily model, orchestrate, and visualize complex workflows from end to end with no problem. They support Kubernetes and modern infrastructure with elastic on-demand agents and cloud deployments. To learn more about GoCD, visit gocd.org slash changelog. It's free to use. They have professional support and enterprise add-ons available from ThoughtWorks. Once again, gocd.org slash changelog. It sounds like Glimmer is similar to the way Vue is heading in terms of drop-in, ease of use, that kind of thing. I think, yeah, that's kind of the use case that it's trying to solve is this very like kind of lightweight thing that I can just drop it into an application, um, do a little bit of interactive components, and then be done with it. So uh, at LinkedIn, we have like a couple different use cases where we're like, embedded widgets in like CRMs, like Salesforce, Salesforce or something like that. And we want to have like um, uh, just a little bit of functionality. It's on a whole app. It's just a component that needs to go somewhere um, in another person's like website. But I mean, you could use it for any type of website, but that's kind of the use cases. It's just like a small component library that can be used inside of us. Server rendered application, or it can be um, the idea is that you can also use these components uh, inside of a inside of Ember application. So you have like this cross um, stack use. So another use case we have at LinkedIn is we have a bunch of internal shared components, and uh, we want to be able to have like high leverage. So no matter what stack you're on, you're kind of uh, writing these components for you know. If you're on like an old old application that is still server-side render, you can still write uh, using uh, the Glimmer uh, component API. Or if you're working on Ember app, you can use these uh, components and drag and drop them uh, into your application. So that's kind of the idea is both um, to basically um, span the spectrum of like use cases for this template-driven um, approach to uh, UI. Well, y'all might need to change your tagline because it's a framework for creating ambitious web applications. But it sounds like it's like, and any other thing that you might be creating. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, so a follow-up to that might be, will this be able to be dropped in with just a script tag into HTML? And, you know, if I want to pop it into a page or drop the script into a head, is that how it might be used? Or is there a different process to make it that lightweight? Glimmer.js uses Ember CLI uh, to actually produce the assets. So at the end of it, you have some script tags, but it isn't like go to, you know, like JavaScript CDN or whatever, and just grab a script tag and drop it onto the page. Now you could probably do it if you wanted to, it's not going to be fast because you need like uh, a a compiler basically to compile the templates into something. Um, So uh, it's not, I don't think it's like how jQuery was where you can just drop it on the page and start using it. There's still a little bit of a build step to, you know, do uh, get the app running. One kind of interesting thing that we've thought about is um, we can totally vend um, the Glimmer components inside of a custom element. Um, and we have, I think there's a, a repo on the Glimmer.js uh, repository that uh, basically did this. So the way that you would introduce these components onto a page wasn't through uh, necessarily through like a script tag, but it was like a custom element that could like fetch all of its resources and then, um, you know, render that component to the page. Tell us a little bit more about tree shaking. The, the way I understand it is you have Ember, the library, and it exposes, you know, N numbers of functions. Maybe there's 500 functions. But in my application code, I'm only actually calling into three of those and maybe those three call into 17 others. And so of Ember's 500, I'm just making these numbers up, of course. Of Ember's 500 functions, my system calls 20. And so tree shaking is the process by which we can actually just shake those 20 out and leave the rest of Ember on the cutting room floor, hence reducing the dependency weight. Is that is that what it is? Yeah, I mean, I don't know why in the JavaScript community we come up with like new words for like <laughs> explaining words. like things... Like it's dead code elimination is basically what it is. If yeah. <laughs> it's like it's not tree shaking. I know it always mystif- it's mystical. You're like you're gonna shake a tree. Yeah. Before Chad, you go forward. Then what's a what's a good way you say it? Then what was the terminology used? It, for it's this? like static linking. You're just gonna link all of the. So you're gonna follow the imports back until you basically to depth, and you retain all, only the code that you have statically set inside of. JavaScript that you're using. Um, so like there's projects like Webpack do tree shaking, Rollup does tree shaking. Um, and yeah, it's just another way of saying that we're going to remove all the code that you're not calling into. But you just use the the phrase we're trying to get rid of based on what you just <laughs> well, said the, in your description that's the of the industry it. phrase, though. He's just using the, the jargon. On the lines of tree shaking, maybe you guys know this, maybe you don't. I've learned this recently. Do you know that there are performance junkies, like web performance junkies, who will effectively tree shake their web fonts? So I think they call it sub-fonting or subsetting. And so that's where you actually... You, you only, so you're loading web fonts and they're expensive and what have you for performance, but you're only using of maybe the, let's just say the English uh, alphabet, 26 letters. I'm only using, I'm only using 17 of the letters. And so I'm going to actually tree shake out uh, the other, <laughs> the other letters <laughs> out of my web font and reduce my web fonts, you know, s- set, like subset it to just the letters I'm using. 
Isn't that crazy? Is this at render for the individual user or just like at a new compile time for the app? I don't know, man. I never looked into it. Because, I mean, if it's if it's on demand, that's pretty crazy. It makes sense, though, because like if you have 26 or even, you know, many, many more characters than 26 and you're using only 10 and the font weighs two megs and you can cut it down to less than one. Why not? That's true. But why not is because that's a lot of work. But you do it for your JavaScript. Why not do it for your web fonts? Why, why don't you just use Times New Roman? Then it's already there. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to your designer. Talk to your designer. Anyways, I've derailed us. But I just I yes. found that amazing, just the lengths that people will go to to achieve, you know, to squeeze out a little bit more performance. It's, it's kind of cool. So we were talking about tree shaking in JavaScript, and I probably completely derailed us. Uh, we were talking about the term itself, but maybe you you mentioned that like Ember isn't there yet. Like we can't do it. Like we want Ember to be this, you know, uh, framework for both ambitious and you know non ambitious websites. We, we would love to be versatile and have like a slim version of Ember that we could do via tree shaking. But you didn't sound like you were there yet, and so I guess. The next question is, and maybe you've, maybe this is asked and answered, but just bear with us. Like, what has to change, and when is it going to change, so that Ember can be used in that fashion? I think as of like the past couple of days, it's basically done. Uh, one of the challenges we had um, with Ember itself is that internally, like, there's circular references to things, and you have to be able to like sort all that type of stuff out. Um, but I believe uh, Robert Jackson, who's on the core team, has a branch working where um, we're not only uh, have the the modules API kind of modules API completely fleshed out as uh, ES6 imports. Um, the other thing is that uh, we we ship Babel with uh, Ember CLI as a default to transpile. Uh, the ES6 or like the newest version or newest syntax of JavaScript into something that can run in a variety of browsers. So one of the things we've done there is introduce the notion of targets. So what a target is, is if a browser um, supports all of these new language features, then don't compile it into like code that needs to be uh, into code that would could run in like IE10. Um, so he has a branch where we're not only doing the modules API, so you can tree shake out the app, we're also only um, transpiling the features that aren't implemented in any browser. So this is uh, kind of uh, a way that you can target just evergreen browsers, which has kind of been one of, one of the issues of trying to get Ember to a place where you can target different types of um, different browsers and different types of, uh, or not, sorry, uh, not targeting different browsers, but targeting different use cases is that Ember comes along with um, a decent amount of polyfills that are polyfilling things uh, for um, APIs that don't, that aren't there in older browsers. So even though Ember is on 3.0, we still support uh, IE 11 and then everything else is evergreen. So for, because everything else is evergreen, we kind of have to have an answer of like, w like I don't, I shouldn't have to like down compile, you know, this code, I should be able to maybe create multiple builds and I can serve, you know, assets for IE 11 that will run in IE 11 versus I can just use the native, uh, native JavaScript inside of like Chrome say. 
Um, so I think very soon uh, this is going to become a reality. I looked it up while you were talking there just to confirm I knew what an evergreen browser was. I mean, I kind of understood that it was future proofed, but I didn't know how. Can you break that down real quick? Yeah. So an evergreen browser uh, is basically a browser that automatically updates. It's keeping everybody at the leading edge so that um, people do not get stuck on like specific uh, versions. So like uh, Internet Explorer was notorious for like you had like IE6, IE7, IE8, IE9, and everybody's just waiting for like these browsers to kind of phase out in terms of their usage, where an evergreen browser um, if you have like Chrome or something like that, it'll tell you like, oh, a new version of Chrome is available. And then you basically opt in and you have the new version of the browser. So you, it's very difficult for somebody to get stuck on a specific uh, version. It's kind of pushing everybody forward. So like every, I think, major browser vendor now does this. Edge does this. Uh, Chrome does this. Uh, Firefox does it. Uh, I believe Opera because it's, you know, uh, effectively like blink under the hood. They're doing this as well. So yeah, it's just a way to make sure that, you know, everybody is on towards the leading edge of the technology. It's kind of funny to think about that. Like I just took me my about page for Chrome and I'm on version 65 and plenty dots after that, obviously. But like, could you imagine marketing Chrome 65? Like, hey, what Chrome are you on? <laughs> I'm on 60. What? You know, you probably still say that behind the scenes in in Devland, support, but like, yeah, yeah but not general users aren't saying they just know they use Chrome. And I guess to going back to the question of like being more nimble, like view has being able to drop a script tag in, obviously you got the VM. So it makes, makes it harder compiling down to machine code or byte code or something like that to make things faster. Um, you know, one of the issues with jQuery was just the fact that it would ship so much and didn't do all this tree shaking. Like we just kind of talked through, you kind of had to ship all of jQuery and support all browsers Regardless, but you wanted to use jQuery features. That's what made it sort of go out of style was this lack of modularity. Well, smaller is definitely always better. And especially, you know, now that we've found, you know, the Internet very much exists on mobile devices. And those mobile devices are very much on slow Internet connections with low latency out in the boondocks. And uh, to stay competitive in the front end space, um, I think. Uh, you have to be able to, you know, scale up and scale back down. And Ember was always in the space of ambitious web apps. And so if you know that you need that interactivity and you need routing, you need all this stuff, it was a great choice. But if you don't need all of that and you still need, you know, if you're thinking about doing font subsetting because <laughs> you need that squeeze out that extra bit of performance, uh, it really takes Ember off the table for you. And, and hopefully this will move it back into a place where, okay, maybe I can still... I can still just use the parts that I need, which is great. Tell us what else. I mean, we're wrapping up here, here soon, but what else is coming down the road uh, for Ember? Things that you're excited about or something maybe you're working on personally? Uh, yeah. So one of the, I think the biggest uh, boons for the community is actually adopting like ES6 classes in Ember itself. It, it's one of the things that me as a, or as an Ember developer that you use every single day, you're, you know, writing classes or updating classes and everything like that. And at this point, it, uh, it feels very old. Um, so we're doing this big refresh of the uh, class system just to use ES6 classes. And I think that's what 
people would kind of expect of a JavaScript uh, framework in uh, 2018. The, the, like I mentioned earlier, the reasons why is that we want to support the entire class model, um, the, cla the entire uh, class system inside of native ES6 syntax. And we should be able to do that here uh, pretty shortly. Um, certain things work today, but not the entire uh, scope in which the Ember object model kind of like falls in today. Um, but I, I agree with the sentiment that uh, I think the web has a pretty big advantage when it comes to the mobile market. And so I am personally kind of excited about this um, this idea of like how small can we get the framework so that we can you know address like different concerns for like different markets and everything like that. So the web in general, I think, has an opportunity in emerging markets. And Google talks a lot about you know the next billion users to come online. They have like uh, <clears throat> they have poor connectivity. The phones aren't great. You also have uh, <clears throat> data plans are rather restricted inside, inside of these markets. And so like downloading native applications inside of those markets is like pretty, uh, like a big non-starter. So I think the web can be extremely useful in these use cases. You just have to think, I think, pretty diligently about things that you're sending down to the browser and everything like that. So I think it's great that Ember is uh, really taking this seriously and we're doing a bunch of interesting things to um, kind of uh, like bend the curve in terms of what we think about web applications from the kind of like static HTML applications to like the highly dynamic Ember applications uh, that we have today or like React applications. I think that there is like a, a, a good middle ground, which is taking the best from both worlds of having server-side rendering for like the first route and then client-side rendering all the subsequent routes, I think is like a huge, um, it's a it's a very good pattern uh, that I think a lot of applications should follow. And I think it's, uh, as we get, um, as we land some of these things in Ember, that'll become kind of like the, hopefully the default way that we think about building these client-side applications is, um, with a very uh, performance-focused uh, point of view from the start, but at the same time acknowledging that as um, your requirements of your project change, you have to have you have to have something, right? You can't just like say like, no, we're not going to build that feature. We have to have like some uh, shared architecture for us to build these ambitious things. That's kind of been the the mo for Ember going back to 2014, Jared, like that's what we heard from Yehuda and Tom was, was like borrowing the best ideas from the community. Not so much, uh -huh. not so much not coming up with our own, of course, but just like paying attention to what's happening out there and doing their best to adopt best practices that are happening elsewhere and not just like turning a blinder on because it's competition or a different framework exactly. or different ideas. You know, it's like, is it working over there? Okay, let's, you know, how how was how does it fit into the ecosystem of Ember? And how does it make sense for the mission of Ember? Since we've kind of covered a lot of ground here in terms of, you know, where Ember's been, where it's going, uh, your involvement in it, you know, maybe share with us, 
I think Jared even asked this question or like, you know, what makes someone come back to Ember if they haven't seen it in a while? I'm thinking more along the lines of they've never seen it at all or if this is fresh and new for them or maybe they've only ever seen React. What makes someone choose, you know, Ember? What where, where are good use of cases for Ember and maybe what are some good examples of applications in the wild? Maybe even at LinkedIn, how are you using it? The value prop has kind of always been with Ember is um, we do look at what is going on inside of the community and we try to roll those best practices into uh, the application. So this is like the whole stability without stagnation uh, kind of MO, which means that we're going to create really stable APIs, but you're not going to be left behind by what is happening in the larger JavaScript community. Um, so that's kind of the the way that we think about it. And if you're building applications that are going to live for you know several years that have many developers working on them, or they don't even have to have many developers working on it. It's more or less like I'm building a business. I don't want to, I want to think about the business. I want the technology to allow me to continue to um, make my business successful, but I want to not have to think about, you know, which libraries are going to, should I use for routing or what's a good way of like doing tra uh, change tracking or how do I efficiently update the view, it comes along with, I think it encodes a lot of the best practices. Um, and I, I think that's, it still resonates with me. Um, you know, I've been doing this since like working with Ember since, you know, 2013, 2012, and it still resonates with me that uh, we, we have shared solutions to problems and recognizing that not all applications are special snowflakes. There's like common things that we can build up from. Um, so like this removes like inside of an organization, this removes like hour long meetings on like how you're going to do <laughs> like, like build this very, this thing that isn't, it's critical to the technology, but it isn't mission critical for the business. Um, and so I think that's one of the areas where uh, Ember strives is the stability without stagnation. Uh, aspect of of it. Um, I think for people that have used Ember and have come, you know, have left and then are taking another uh, look at it, I think what they will find is I think some of the things that may have been difficult for people to pick up at the beginning was like API docs uh, around like 1.0 and still kind of like through the 1.x series where uh, they were good, but they weren't great at like explaining like how the entire system works together and everything like that. And so I think we've, we've done the, we've invested a lot in documentation, actually having a docs team so that the concepts are easier to learn. Um, and so the, those, that's like one category of people is like, this thing is just like, I don't get it. Like it's hard to learn. I took like one look at it, but the documentation, uh, didn't really tell me you know, why I should do this. Um, and then there's the performance aspects to it. I think we we are doing a lot of interesting things, and we have uh, written about like the wins uh, from doing those performance things. So like, if you got into situations where like Ember was falling down because of like performance or whatever, I think we've addressed a, a lot of those cases, and in some cases. Uh, leapfrogged others in the space. Um, and so those are, I think, some of the things that 
I would kind of like re-examine. Um, I, the other thing I guess is the things about like the JavaScript community are, it is definitely like every so many years, like a new thing comes along and, you know, makes you have to go rewrite your entire application. And maybe like people have, you know, been through this at this point because, you know, like, like I said, Ember has been around for a decent amount of time. And, um, some people get burnt out by that, right? Like, uh, always chasing the hype train or whatever is uh, another thing that I think brings people back is like they like went off and like tried a bunch of things, but then they're like, oh, well, this this thing actually works. And like, I don't have to worry about, you know, ch- worry about like what you're basically having FOMO. Yeah, that's, that's certainly the truth is, is there's definitely a, a hype cycle in JavaScript. And, you know, I think the interesting thing with Ember is that you've, like Jared said at the beginning of the show, is that uh, you've been... Like this energizer bunny, you say it's stability. What was the the, the phrase you used? Uh, stability without stagnation. There you go. I mean, you've been that for years, like six plus, seven plus years. You personally, even you're not not just Ember. That's pretty cool to see that. So you certainly give a lot of confidence into the future of Ember. We'll leave it there then. Thank you so much for your time today, and uh, thanks for coming on Change Log. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Change Log. If you enjoyed it, do us a favor, share it with a friend, go on Twitter, tweet a link. If you're using Overcast, go in there and favorite it. And thank you to our sponsors, Airbrake, DigitalOcean, and GoCD. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast to fix things here at ChangeLog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode servers. Head to Linode.com slash ChangeLog. Check them out. Support this show. This show is hosted by myself, Adam Stokowiak, and Jared Santo. Editing for this show is by Tim Smith. Music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. And you can find more shows just like this at ChangeLog.com. Thanks for tuning in. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>